Hey, welcome to Presentable. It's episode number 12, and I'm your host, Jeff Bean. Today on the show is Nas Hammett, who founded the agency WeightShift. He and I have worked together for many years, and today we discuss the tools that we use to do design. How have they changed over the years? What are we all using today? And where do we think they're going in the future? It's fun stuff, so let's get right to it. Can I tell you about my week? <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, so... I was going to be recording this with you via Lisbon. I was going to Portugal. Gotcha. Um, for the for the Web Summit, you know. Do you know about that conference? You mentioned it, I think. So. Yeah, yeah. When we were talking before, it's enormous. It's there's so it's so it's all about startups, technology, and all of that. It's like fifty thousand people go to this. Um, they have hundreds, or maybe even a couple thousand startups that all come. And I, I went last year, it was in Dublin, and they, they had this, like, literally, like, arena where where they do, like, you know, horse, not horse racing, but, you know, um, you can imagine, right? Like, like yeah. in the United States, it's where we would have a rodeo or something, right? Like, <laughs> giant <laughs> arena. And, and it's literally row after row after row of, of uh, these countertops at sort of, like, standing height, like bar height, right? And every meter is another startup with a like a screen with their MacBook plugged in and, you know, two people just and a little sign that says what they do. And there's hundreds of That's them. That's huge. Just row after row. And, and they swap them out every day. So you can... Wait, so, they swap them out every day? Every day, so it's like yeah. a whole set of new startups yeah, come in. That, that's what I mean. It's like two, thousands of these startups. So on one hand, you know, I'm like thrilled by this. Like, oh my gosh, look at all this entrepreneurial activity that's happening and all this optimism and people trying to change the world and start their own thing and unsatisfied <laughs> with how things are. And on the other hand, I'm like, oh my God, like it, it's got to be a little d- disheartening for these these founders, you know, just, yeah. Uh, anyway. This is your competition. Yeah. Here, right. Here Look they around are. You. Here so. you go. Yeah. Uh, and these are just the ones that, you know, I think like the statistic is the, the, the web summit people accept one in 10 or something. They get tens of oh, thousands wow. of startups that apply for this. Anyway, it's this huge thing. It was in Lisbon this year and I was supposed to be hosting, uh, one of, they have many, many conferences inside the big conference. And, and one of them is all focused on design. And I was supposed to be, um, hosting, sort of, you know, MC through the day for all yeah. of these, all the design content that was going to be at the Web Summit. And I, um, uh, I, I left for the airport on Monday morning and I get to the train station and I don't have my passport, which <laughs> is, is, I, I like, saw the so, tweet. I did yeah. see the tweet. So yeah. I, and, and so like, I'm not very good with details in general. People know that uh, about me that have worked with wait, me. Wait, you know what? This. No, with details. I don't know this. No, a big picture. Big picture, I'm fine. Okay. All the little okay. details. I need a system, right? And that's probably a pretty human thing. Fair enough. So I have this packing system where, like, the night before, everything is laid out on the dining room table. And I, I had, like, my wallet, my passport, little stack of euros that I was taking with me. Everything was laid out. So I know I, had, I, know I put it all in my pocket. Went off. And so somewhere in between... My flat and the train station, no passport, gone. So, like, my flight's uh, in, uh, you know, two hours. There's no way. Yeah. So I couldn't go. So, <laughs> so I had to That's cancel. a bummer. I know. It was a super bummer. I was, I was kind of looking forward to it. And I felt, I felt horrible. I felt horrible that, they, you know, like, now they had to scramble to find somebody to host the, the thing. Um, did you, uh, did yeah. you find it? So, anyway. So I didn't go to Lisbon. And instead, I, I stayed here in London. And then, so, I don't know. I don't know if you have a particular story about what happened a couple of days ago with the elections. But it was, I had this surreal experience because I'm like, what am I, eight hours ahead? Yeah. So on Tuesday, I went to bed when, you know, none of the polls had closed yet. Right. So, and I wasn't going to stay up until two or four in the morning to find out. I was just going to get up early and see the results of the election. So I go to bed and I get up in the morning and I'm like, okay, I'm not going to look. I'm just, I'm going to make some coffee, get some breakfast and then sit down and just read through everything. Very excited. And so I do that. And then I sit down and I like get my iPad and there's no internet. Like it just, it's not working. Like, and I'm, and I'm like, the first thing that goes into my mind is like, oh, this was the, the DDoS attack that they were warning about. Like, <laughs> like the internet is gone. Russia Something has happened. Russia is attacking the internet yeah. to disrupt the elections. This is where my brain goes before coffee. Right. Yeah. And so I'm like, well, that can't be. So I turn off the router, I reboot and I, um, and then I grab my phone, which is still on the 4g and I look and I go to the New York times and it says Trump triumphs. And in this state of Russia is attacking us and <laughs> like, I haven't yeah. had coffee, I'm like, oh, the New York Times has been hacked. 
<laughs> because this, <laughs> this news can't possibly be true. Right. Uh, anyway, that was, um, it turns out at the end of the day, not only did I lose my passport, I forgot to pay my bandwidth, my Virgin Media bandwidth bill. So they oh, had no. shut me off overnight. And so that's why we had to postpone our recording yesterday. That's my No worries. There's my election story. So anyway. uh, I did not have much of an election story aside from just kind of sadness, despair. <laughs> yeah. Uh, trying to also think about, I, I'm the kind of person who's like in, in the face of problems, I start thinking about the solution immediately or how do we get past this point? Well, that's the quality of a good um, designer. I am not much of, yeah, I'm not much of a griever. I'm more of a got to do something now yeah. kind of a person. Yeah. So, which I, which I sometimes think is not healthy either, but, or, you know, I don't know. Well, so a little time to sit with your emotions is always a good thing. Yeah. No matter what your emotions may be, you know, elevated yeah. or, or depressed. So fair enough. I think it's just, it's just fascinating. It's, it's going to be interesting. I hope it's not as, you know, doomy and gloomy as some people make it out to be. But sure. We'll see. Yeah, yeah. Well, if it is, there'll be good art and that people are making good music and stuff like that. That seems to follow, <laughs> doesn't it? <laughs> In times of despair and oppression. Yep. The best art comes out. That's yeah, that's true. Maybe. We'll so, see. I mean, that's, that's, what, that's what they used to say about Seattle all the time. And that's why Seattle had such a awesome 90s grunge scene was because no one makes uh, great music in happy places. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You get the cloud cover really brings out the creative spirit. <laughs> yeah. So eh, we'll see. Yeah. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Well, anyway, despite all of the recent events, I did want to talk about tools. Um, yes. And actually, you know what? I was looking back at uh, the episodes of this podcast so far, and I was actually kind of proud that we had made it. This is like the 12th or 13th. Now I've lost track. Yep. But it's been about a dozen episodes of this podcast and haven't talked about design tools at all, <laughs> which was <laughs> Just, a little bit part of my goal, right? Was to yeah, not, but I like that. Not spend all the time just on, on the, I don't know, I find this all the time at conferences, right? I'll, I might give a talk about process and uh, yeah. inspiration or cu culture and team collaboration. And then at the end, you know, somebody says, uh, how do you, what tool do you use for project management? And I'm like, oh. like it, <laughs> use your brain. And then if you have to write it down somewhere, there's like 10 tools. I don't know. <laughs> I'll find one. I feel, like, I feel like project management is one of those strange I feel, I don't know, it's one of those strange things where people don't really know where to actually collect the stuff in terms of projects. It's a little bit, I mean, ultimately project management tools, and this is an oversimplification, but project management tools are, are very similar to to-do apps, just on a bigger scale and right. more collaborative and, and lots more features around who's doing what and when and things like that. But, and, and it's always been my opinion that to-do apps, there's so many of them because there's so many ways that people organize their productivity and organize their lives. And so there's space for all these different approaches. Yep. I, I think mm -hmm. the same is true for, for project management. I have always been very much like a visual organizer, like, you know, sticky notes on the wall kind of thing, mm -hmm. which is why Trello works so well for me. And I like look at Asana and I kind of just glaze over. But they're very, very different approaches. And, and one suits the way that my brain tends to organize the world, I guess. Yeah, Trello is Trello is one a strange one because I, I, it's pretty ubiquitous in terms of all the clients I've worked with or the places you know, I've I've collaborated with use it pretty widely. I haven't ever used the Sana for any any project, but yet I I'm not actually that into Trello. Like I'll use it because that's what people use or the teams I work with use, but I find it a little. Maybe it's an aesthetic thing. <laughs> it could be. <laughs> but uh, I, I do find it, especially if people kind of use a custom background or image, there's an inside joke I find half the time that people like to, to do with the cards and stuff. So there's like some weird image on it. Yeah, yeah. And I'm, so I find it very distracting. So I don't, I don't actually find it very... I find the, I find the interface, uh, you know, when you use it and you're scrolling and you're going side to side and it has the cards that pop out as sort of an overlay. It, it all makes sense. There's something about the execution that I still... It still bothers me to this day. Well, that's fair. I just like... I, to me, it's the only tool that's ever given me an overview of how everything is relating to one another. Yeah. In a, yeah. In a way that I can literally just like 
lean back and say like, oh, all right, we have a bunch over on this side that needs to get over on that side. On that side. Yeah. yeah. But I, I, I think too, it's like, what's cool about Salo though, I, I, I do sort of agree, is that people use it in interesting ways in terms of like how they, they do their columns or how they move either from left to right or how they put things in one bucket or they divide a set of to-do lists over on this side and then, you know, it gets deferred. So, I mean, I kinda, I, it's kind of interesting seeing how, how different teams uh, implement it. Yeah, yeah. Well, again, like I don't think the, the tool that you choose has to map to how you're already working and can't use a tool to make people work the other way. I mean, I found that out. The years of consulting back in the ad- adaptive path days around content management systems, right? right? Like people so excited to like implement a content management system because then finally all of the writers will put the metadata in. I'm like, no, yeah. not if they're yeah, not yeah, already yeah. doing it. Like you got you to fix a whole bunch of stuff before that's going to happen. Uh, not, and some tool is not going to magically make people do more work than they did before. Well, that, that's sort of so. the interesting thing about tools. Like tools are either something you adapt to or you try to make work for you. And that's, that's where I find it's always interesting to see who... When you're working with people, you know, you try to get them, get them on board of a certain tool and then they just don't adopt it. Or there's yeah. something about it that doesn't work of their mental model, or the way they've worked before, and they're too lazy to change. Uh, it's just fascinating, like the sets of tools that teams or people decide, you know, this, is, this works for me or this, I'm going to try this to see if I can find yeah. the magic bullet, which right. I don't know if it exists, so... Yeah, so I want to talk about a bunch of, um, you know, what we're using to make design. Yeah. And I also wanted to, to ask you first if you, um, did you get a new MacBook Pro? I did not. Um, I'm not You've got, what do, you, what do you do your design on? What do you, like when you're doing the hard work? So right now, iMac 5K, sort of, I think, the best computer uh, that I've ever used. I've, I've been doing work at Visco, and over there I use uh, the last generation MacBook Pro that's been completely pimped out, so... Um, those are they're pretty fantastic machines. I, it's sort of an interesting thing, like the, the whole MacBook Pro coming out with the, the touch bar, and uh, there's right. been that sort of outcry of, like, when is Apple going to make a Mac Pro? Like, you know, the last thing they made was, what, three years ago? The, the spherical... The, tra- the trash can. The trash can, the black trash can, beautiful trash can. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> but okay. it is, it's sort of an interesting... I mean, I don't, I don't know. I, for me, for, for sort of web work and interface work, I don't feel like I need any more power than this. I don't know right. what videographers and maybe hardcore, I don't know, even for, t- for photography, I find it completely ample if you get the VAM all the way up. Like I've got 16 gigs in this one, in, this, in the iMac. Mm-hmm. Um, and that feels plenty to me. I mean, I think about when, you know, like a decade ago when I had, I think like the white iMac, Right. And I only had, I could only put like two gigs in it. And I was like, wow, you know. Yeah. Uh, but it was enough to do, run Photoshop and, and have text edit or, or whatever text editor I was using at the time to kind of just like, you know, sublime text. Or, I don't even know. Yeah, maybe back then it was BB Edit or something. But I, I just don't think it's, I don't know if it's in, as intensive of a need as people think it is. Well, for, by and large, I mean, I think uh, generally when I think of the pro market for what we do, it is, you know, fr- from a design perspective, it's interfaces, perhaps some like, you know, static, I don't know, marketing materials, things like that. And then kind of into the front end code and front end development and things like that. So the only place where I, I see that kind of horsepower really necessary in the work that we do is if you are actually spending your time in Xcode and needing to do frequently uh, recompile binaries Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And even that, it seems like the the last couple generations of machines have kind of kept up in a way that that doesn't require the same sort of professional, or for whatever value of that term, hardware. That, like you said, like CAD rendering or or giant, like editing 4K video and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. In fact, the, the... the limiting factor in the kind of work that we do tends to be screen real estate. Yes. Like being able to see a bunch of stuff at once. And, and that's just, you know, like you said, 5K monitor or 4K monitors or things like that. Yeah. I mean, I, I, for me, it's always get the biggest display I can. And then everything else just kind of falls around it. But like, I mean, uh, even like working off an air, like I have a 
I don't know, a four-year-old air at this point. It's slow, uh-huh. but it, you know, it works. I mean, you know, when we've done stuff together and done it live, it, it, it's kind of clunky, but it, <laughs> it'll get the job done in Sketch if you need it to, you know. Oh, like those, um, those sessions that you and I would do. Yeah. Sort of, there's three or four people in the room, and, and just I'm of... like writing on the whiteboard, and you're keeping up actually designing in, exactly. in real time. and move that over. Hey, that looks cool. What if we tried this? Yeah. Yeah. That kind of stuff. I think the tools have gotten to the point where, so, so, you know, things like sketch have come out because they take advantage of the core operating system, right? Instead of here's this sort of global binary that we make for all platforms that, uh, you know, Photoshop using that and just sort of having that sort of expand out and be sort of bloated, uh, and not use, core components of an OS and just sort of, it's, it's, it's cool to see all these tools sort of try to meet you halfway or try to get, take advantage of the platform you're on or the tools that are available to that platform. So, yeah, you know, I think that has a lot to do with, frankly, Apple's dominance. Yeah. You know, I think, I think if you look back 10 years or, or so, there was a time when Adobe considered itself either a peer or a, or even bigger, like having more leverage than Apple. Yeah. Um, maybe that's a little longer or, or whatever, S- such that like they didn't have to bend to Apple's APIs. They would use their own and, and people would, you know, uh, follow along them. And I think the tables really turned as Apple sort of became more and more dominant um, over time. Uh, yeah, I, I, th- I think too that, you know, Photoshop, it says it in the name. It's, it's Photoshop. It's for photos. It was made as image editing software. And I think... The fact that, you know, Adobe bought Macromedia and took Fireworks or, or Flash and everything else that, you know, Delector and, you know, HomeSite and all this, this other stuff from back in the day and uh, sort of didn't reinvest in those tools as uh, UI interface tools. And, and maybe the market wasn't there yet where we needed hardcore UI tools because things like the iPhone and the iPad uh, weren't out yet, you know, and, and sort of people who made Mac apps or Windows apps made them sort of native to those platforms. And then yep. uh, we, you know, it's, it's, I, I like that people are making things that are sort of like catered to different little niches. So going back to, you know, what you were saying earlier about how we've got all these different tools and people are finding ways. And uh, there's, there is this sort of depth of like awesome sort of competition happening or like, I feel like every other week there's some interface tool or some plugin or some sort of another way to look at or another approach about how a group of people have decided, no, there's this other way to do interface design or user experience and like this is how it could work in your workflow. So it's just sort of really cool to see just this like, it's like a crazy time because it's like so many tools and yet there are days when I'm just like, yeah, pen and paper is fine. So, <laughs> well, all right. So to that end, let's go back to hardware for a second. What do you think of the new uh, Microsoft Surface Studio? I so, see the, the demos of that. Yeah, that thing is awesome. Uh, <laughs> it, it's kind of the computer I wanted five years ago or like maybe even 10 years ago. I always thought and I still think Apple should do this. And hopefully the touch bar is maybe a step in that. But I, I was just thought, why doesn't why can't you just touch a Mac screen? Why doesn't the MacBook Pro you know, its main screen just be a big capacitive touchscreen instead of... I, I've always wanted to touch stuff. Um, uh-huh. So so I, it's been interesting. I used to have a Wacom, um, so I was very much into using, like, the Intuos and everything, and, and I loved sort of being able to kind of use or map, like, my, my hand to points on the screen and stuff. So being able to draw or, like, actually touch the screen and just do that sort of, like, minority of the port, touching things. And I don't know. It's, mm-hmm. It breaks that barrier in terms of, like, you know, you're, you're using inputs, keyboard and mouse or, you know, trackpad or whatever, to move things on a screen to just, you know, like we are with our phones and, and iPads and tablets and stuff where you can just manipulate them instantly and directly. So I, I, it's sort of an interesting, uh, I, I mean, I think it's great. I think Microsoft is now the underdog and I think uh, they're, they're going all out for it, which I think is kind of cool. I am skeptical that Apple <laughs> will, will, will push the Mac OS in Probably that not. direction. Yeah. I mean, I think they're, they're being really, I think in, in some ways they're doubling down by saying we're absolutely not by putting the touch bar on the keyboard. 
You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I think that they fundamentally believe that there is there are two paradigms and are not going to mix them because they feel like they can go deeper and uh, and higher quality by staying with the sort of vertical screen and flat keyboard versus the thing you hold in your hands right, right with iOS. Right. I think, but at the same time, I don't know. Like I have, and this might be just again generational. Like I spent a couple decades using a laptop or a, a desktop machine to do design work that I have never been able to sit with an iPad and be as efficient and as like to really get into flow. Like the tool is always in my way yeah. when I'm doing gotcha. it, but I'm because I'm so proficient with shortcut keys and like the trackpad selections and just all of that. Like I've, I, I tried, right? Like I really tried, especially now, like the majority of the, <laughs> this is maybe it's a little sad, but the majority of the creative tool work that I do is in Keynote. <laughs> I can't, I can't, I can't create a thing on the iPad in Keynote. I have to, I have ah. to do it in the paradigm that I know. Right. Now it could be that iOS is just a kind of a nascent thing still, you know, really when mm -hmm. it comes to that, like, uh, especially at a larger size, like the iPad as a production level tool, but I couldn't, I couldn't quite see myself using the surface to do the kind of work that sort of content creation type yeah. work yeah. that they were showing. And to be fair, like they, most of what they were showing was really literally like illustrators yeah, and people exactly. drawing things on the screen of, of which there are very few of those people yeah. in the world, you know? I mean, I think it's, it's, so. it's, it's, it's interesting because I think stuff like, um, what Adobe XD is doing with some of their apps and stuff, uh, the one that that Koivin was sort of uh, working with with Adobe. Um, comp, right? Yeah, Isn't comp, the one, comp. Yeah, the one where you just sort of draw a square of your finger, and then it just mm -hmm. immediately becomes a high-fidelity square. Or if you do like three lines, it becomes a block of text and sort of a wireframe look. Yeah. Um, so it's, I think it's like it's like snap to grid on steroids. Exactly. Right? Yeah. It, yeah. It, it, it's sort of predictive, and I think that's I think that was actually sort of a really cool product in terms of. Uh, translating intent to something high fidelity quickly. So it, it's, it really is taking pen to paper uh, and using the same analogy, putting it on steroids, except now you're just putting it into a digital format uh, without, without that, that whole thing, you know. If you do it on a whiteboard, someone's got to take a photo uh, and then someone's got to like actually render it and sort of high fidelity or take that feedback. And here there's this opportunity to like, well, we just did it during the working session, and here's the actual wireframe, or here's the actual layout, or, or whatever it is. So um, I, I think there's a sort of thing about efficiencies, and then it's, but it's also about like whatever's convenient to you at that time. Right. You know, and pen and paper is always, or whiteboards, or just whatever, yeah. it's just always going to be super convenient. Yeah, yeah. No, I would say for the last five or six years, almost all of the, the kind of quote-unquote design work that I've been involved with has been at the whiteboard. Yeah. Um, and that, that might just be my process these days, which is, you know, like we were saying earlier, get a group of smart people in the room and let's, do, let's make all the design decisions together and then go off our separate ways and document based on our skill set. Right. So you would go off and spend your time in Photoshop or Sketch doing a high, fully formed visual design and user interface, engineers would go off and start creating architecture and, right. and data models and things like that. I don't know what I do, but <laughs> go off and <laughs> you think start about thinking about the next, exactly. Be, yeah, exactly. Yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah, great. Thing. Um, well, so, I mean, so but, but that it's this, it's this idea of sort of the collaborative time that we have together is where we do the design work. Right. And then we go off and actually just document everything we talked about. So then in that sense, how much does hardware play a role for you? Oh, not at all. Yeah. Not at all. So. Uh, I, I'm super nerdy about whiteboards and markers, but, <laughs> um, but no, I have the, the tiny little MacBook and I kind of push it a little too hard on the podcasting, but other than that, it's all I need yeah. really yeah. for making keynote and doing a bunch of emails and like, you know, all of that kind of, and lo lots and lots of writing, which is where yep. I guess my career ultimately ended up. Yeah. So, but you mentioned earlier, especially around Koi's um, work at Adobe on comp, this idea of wireframing, which, to, to be honest, I don't see that much anymore. No. Um, and that's interesting because I spent a big chunk of my career calling myself an interaction designer, maybe a little information architecture as well, but ultimately just this idea of coming up with the, uh, the, uh, the scaffolding 
Yep. Um, you know, like so we, we and and this time we were designing websites and not even for mobile, right? For the most part, but you'd have a, a flow of pages. Each page would have then the the components that it needed on mm-hmm. on it. But I wouldn't uh, get into visual design. I mean, parts of visual design, especially the hierarchy of the page and where the element should go and how much emphasis they should get, how big this should be and and how, what parts should recede. But then ultimately worked with a visual designer who would then go, I don't know, trace over what I had done yep. with a something that included color and typography and imagery and more fleshed out content would come in at that point and stuff like that. I, to be honest, I feel like the development cycle has sped up so much yes. in this world of yep. like agile and lean and um, and all of those methodologies that we just, we don't, we don't do that first round of architecture and in interaction. We, um, like we said, from the whiteboard straight into, sometimes even straight into code yeah. is fast enough, especially mm-hmm. if you already have a big visual library that you've been working on for, for a while and you just know what all the components are going to look like. You guys go make it. Here yeah. it is. You know? I mean, I, th- I think a lot of it is, is, is because we have all these tools that, that make it efficient. And I think because we've added... Uh, complexity, not complexity, but sort of uh, multi, multi-platforms, I guess, in terms of, you know, touch, touch devices, it lives on the web, it lives on a phone, it lives on a tablet. And then there are just things that doing it in code, for example, or CSS takes one line versus, okay, I got to like manually put all these buttons into all these screens again, because we decided we wanted for pixel border radius or something, or we needed the color mm. green instead of white or something, and then it, you know, it's it's oh yeah, I can just do just do it in code in in a minute versus <laughs> ten minutes. So it's just like trying to decide the battles of efficiency. But then the, the problem there is sort of like tracking all the changes and and things like that. And it's less of a flow or linear flow, and a more of a sort of cyclical like oh, you do this part i'll do this part and then we'll kind of meet somewhere in the middle and then we get this the thing at the end the deliverable or the the end goal ends up being the uh, ultimate uh, artifact of that that process instead of like tracking uh, a canonical file of changes and that at the end of it because i think like in the last two years none of the files uh, in terms of design files that i'll have at the end of a project actually reflect the final final project that's actually live. Uh, along the way, something happened in code, something happened in copy and specs that just changed all that. Yeah, that's interesting. That's actually really interesting because of the, the intense sort of collaborative nature of all of that, right? Mm-hmm. In that there seems to be a set of uh, stages in the process of making something and the tools are kind of adapting to to meet that. And And what I mean by that is the sort of you might do a very high resolution, very finished looking comp of one state of an interface, but then we take that as the almost like the template. And what I've seen is is move into uh, Slack yeah. to go back and forth with a developer who's going to be building this mm-hmm. thing and say, all right, see this? Um, let's talk about what happens when they click on that. And it is this, it's almost like you're doing a real-time spec. Yes. Yeah. Right? Even... Even before, like the all the interaction design stuff I did, I, I I spent some time like in that real waterfall process of like we're gonna come up with an idea, we're gonna draw some pictures about it, then we're gonna write a whole bunch of words about those pictures, and then give all that to somebody to build. Yeah, and I remember this just like putting all these little like numbered highlights all over an interface and then writing like here's the expected behavior and here's what goes in the drop down and and what a waste of time compared to dropping an image into slack and saying hey let's start with this and then the developer coming back in 10 minutes and posting a screenshot yeah. of what he just built, he just built. yeah she just built <laughs> yeah and and then saying like yeah that but like this and like you know, I know when I work with development teams and, and getting into the Slack channel and looking at the scroll back, it's like, oh, I see how they worked out this whole problem. Yes. And they came up with a much better solution than one person typing, typing, typing and telling somebody else what to do. Well, and it opens up that collaborative nature. Um, I think we've we've been siloed in previous in previous sort of phases, uh, an evolution of, of design and development. It's just sort of, you know, talking about IA, no one talks about IA anymore. Now it's just, we all do UI, UX. There, there's, the lines are blurred in between what that means. I think everyone is sort of part of the UX process now in terms of, you know, I got to talk to a developer to see like, okay, well, Apple allow us to do this on their app. Uh, you know, can I get away with this? And then I got to talk to somebody 
and bland who is the gatekeeper of like we always do our buttons like this or these are our CTAs right. or it's like does the nav do this and then like I got to talk to someone in typography like okay do we ever use type that's 18 you know 18 point versus 16 point um, and then it, it, you just get more and more people involved and, and it's kind of nice to have everyone have their say because then you, you have a much more cohesive pro- project or product I think in terms of um, mm-hmm. oh, okay, we can execute this faster because I, I now have all the information, you know, to execute. And then, you know, you sort of trust the other person to take care of their part. Uh, but you, but everyone has a sort of line of sight into where the thing you're making and building is leading. So uh, the anticipation, um, is less, or the, the sort of like, you know, when they get to their part, it's less of a surprise, uh, they they can anticipate where you're going and the intent better, uh, and I, I think that just makes for a better product. Yeah. So I think I think these tools are helping us. This week's episode is brought to you by Pingdom. I am so glad to have Pingdom as a sponsor because I've been a user for years. Back when we were building Typekit, we made a promise to our users that the fonts we served for their website would load quickly and not delay their pages. We use Pingdom to monitor all of our services and relied on their notifications when any of our systems were slow or reporting outages. This gave us an instant heads up, allowing us to solve problems before our customers even noticed. And I'll share with you a little secret. We use Pingdom to monitor our competitors as well to see how well they were doing and how we compared. You can start monitoring your websites and servers today at pingdom.com slash presentable. You'll get a 14-day free trial, and when you enter offer code presentable at checkout, you'll get 20% off your first invoice. Pingdom is focused on making the web faster and more reliable for everyone who has a website. They do this by offering powerful and easy to use tools and services. For example, if you're a Pingdom user, monitoring the availability and performance of your server, database, or website, it'll be a breeze. Pingdom takes care of this by using more than 70 global test servers that emulate visits to your site, checking its availability as often as every minute. These days, websites are becoming more and more sophisticated and very often include loads of dependencies. These are things like contact forms, e-commerce checkouts, logins, search functionality, and more. So Pingdom makes it possible to monitor the availability of all of these key interactions that people will have with your site. Look, stuff breaks on the internet all the time. Every month, Pingdom detects around 13 million outages. That's more than 400,000 outages every single day. So regardless of whether you have a small website or you're managing a complete infrastructure, it's super important to monitor the availability and performance. All Pingdom needs is a URL you wish to monitor and they take care of the rest. When Pingdom detects an outage, you'll be immediately alerted so you can fix the error before the downtime affects you and your users. You don't want to be caught out when somebody wants to access your site, so you need Pingdom. Check it out today, and you'll be the first to know when your site is down. Go to pingdom.com presentable for a 14-day free trial and use the code presentable to get 20% off at checkout. Thanks to Pingdom for sponsoring Presentable and supporting Relay FM. Okay, so what drawing tool do you use these days? Are you still in Photoshop, or how do you actually make the designs that you... It's, it's um, been sketched for a long time. Oh, it's been sketched for a couple of years now. Um... You're fully switched over? Fully switched over. I think the only time I open up Photoshop is to actually edit photos now. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I, the the latest MacBook that I set up, I didn't even install Photoshop on it. So I actually installed Illustrator because I have to make some icons. But I was like, oh, I, I don't actually need a Photoshop just yet. Yeah, this is interesting. I'm not, I'm not sure I should uh, say this out loud, but I will. We'll just keep it between you and me and whoever's listening, but there was this sort of secret society at Adobe of designers using Sketch <laughs> that, uh, that I found that really, really interesting. So <laughs> that, that, was, that was the last time I, I used Photoshop and, and for a project was when uh, we worked on Adobe.com. That was the last time. So. Oh, yeah, and that was a couple of years ago now. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, but yeah, I had projects at the time that I was sort of starting off in Sketch and um, doing things like that. But I, it's, it's cool that the plugin infrastructure for Sketch allows for lots of different tools now to be sort of glommed onto it, like Envision Craft um, and even uh, the new Abstract, uh, the, the company from Frank Camaro, Josh Brewer. Oh, right, right, right. Uh, Abstract, yeah. Yeah, just, just like, you know, it, it starts, it's, 
It's, it's interesting to see different kinds of tools inside of Sketch uh, start to appear. Or even Zeppelin has a plugin for, for Sketch. Um, that people are trying to sort of come inside of the editing software, uh, creation software, and start adding almost like, you know, versioning or PM tools or even like prototyping tools. And it starts to beg the question of whether or not you should be inside of just one tool all the time or if right. you need to start moving things out into things like um, origami or flamer or whatever else. I mean, but that's, that's the other question is sort of where does design need to go inside of the team you're working with? You know, I think, I think some people feel like things like physics engines, like flamer and origami, need to be sort of done on the design side. Right. Um, and then some people feel like, well, you know, here's this sort of comp I've done. Uh, I'm going to work with the developer to make this come to life so that we have an understanding of how something works and we can work on it together and sort of think about like technical cost and debt um, versus, you know, just sort of like, no, no, this is how it should be. I spec'd it this way. So, uh, you know, I, I kind of like where the lines are blurred a little bit more um, and starts to involve more people in the team. So I haven't, yeah, I haven't honestly kept up that in that much detail on the plugin infrastructure for for Sketch and everything that's happening, I ha I did have a look at Envision's craft, which I found really interesting. Though, maybe maybe you could describe a little bit what they're what they're trying to achieve. There. Yeah, yeah. So craft, I think is craft uh, has a couple of different tools in it. Um, there's uh, the the latest is Prototype, which is uh, they they acquired a company called Silver Silverflows. Um, and I, I, Silverflows never even came out of beta, I think. Uh, their demo was so impressive that I think Envision just acquired them or acquired the people. Uh, but that's probably the biggest thing about Craft, though that, that part of it, the prototyping, is in beta. The, the other parts are just sort of like sort of drop-in or plug-and-play sort of components where it's like, oh, you need photos. We have, you know, you can insert stock photos or like yeah, duplicating yeah, yeah. content. Things that, you know, you'd have to go and have like a lorem ipsum generator and you'd have to hand pluck that content uh, and paste it into, you know, Photoshop or, or whatever before. Now, uh, and even Photoshop, I mean, not to, not to discredit Photoshop, Photoshop did have a pretty decent plugin component where, if, you know, there were people who made plugins for Photoshop that did some of this stuff. I think Craft just sort of was the first to bring it to Sketch and, and, and sort of cover all the bases for the repetition or the repetitive tasks that, you know, designers have to do in terms of like fleshing out comps. So you can go pretty deep with that, like connect it to a JSON source. Yeah. And yeah. Fill it, and you could just say like, do that all the way down the page yeah. and simply ask or somebody on the technical side, like, give me, give me an API basically. I'm yeah. going to hook it up to this prototype. Yeah. So what do you mean by prototyping though? The, the... Oh, uh, it, it'll, it, it basically will do the, it, it'll do what Flinto uh, and sort of what Envision normally kind of does, uh, where you have your artboards and sketch, and you can start to, to connect them. Um, and it has sort of pseudo-physics engines where you can, you oh, can start okay. to mimic, so, uh, you know, like a slide-up or a dissolve or right. a crossfade or, you know, how menus work. Yeah, and then you can do that sort of rudimentary hyperlinking, like click here, go to that yep. artboard. Exactly. All right, all right, So, yeah, all right, so kind of... That's interesting. Moving in the in the direction of everybody should look at the sketch file for the source of truth. Yeah, as opposed to, I'm going to draw something in Sketch and then import it into Envision, and you should look at that for the source. Exactly, of truth. and and I think that's sort of interesting too with the way Abstract is going. And I know I know and I know they're in alpha, but you know they they have announced that um, it it is basically versioning and sort of Git for for design. And I think. That's another thing. Now, now you've got sort of version control and sort of commits. Um, you know, they've they've adapted, they've adopted that that language into how they're doing things. So, so maybe you know that that is one of those things where it, is the sketch file the canonical source now? But it's hard because I, I I have deep empathy for developers and I love collaborating with them because they have such a they have a different line of sight into the development pipeline and and that load map. And just sort of like technical cost and, and just sort of, well, if we do this, you know, bandwidth will suffer. Like if our users, you know, don't have a lot of internet, like we're going to give them, you know, one megabyte of JPEGs that need to be loaded or, or that no asset. Right, so it's right. like there are things there that I think uh, just sort of staying in one silo and just saying, you know, this is what we're going to do versus having this dialogue with 
uh, development and just sort of thinking about development as part of design, just you, you, I think those are the kinds of compromises that are better for UX. So in service of the user, they get a better experience because the product you're making is snappier, faster. Uh, it does what it needs to do. You know, like the things where people talk about delight and they start thinking about physics engines and, oh, you know, I'm going to do an easing curve here. It's, that's the stuff that I think are nice to have. So, I mean, it's, it's kind of like thinking about web standards back in the day and, and, and thinking about uh, sort of progressive uh, enhancement. Uh, I think Dan Cedarholm, you, Zeldman, like a, a lot of guys were sort of yeah. pushing for, uh, here are the fundamental parts, um, but all this extra icing on the cake is, is just that. You don't need it for the thing to work. Um, so, and I think some designers today are sort of getting caught up in sort of developing prototypes as super fully-fledged animated things uh, because, you know, we're so in love with our devices and that, oh, look, you know, in onboarding, it did this little transition or, or whatever else. But it, it, the, the thing for me is like, what's the balance of cost in terms of right. time and effort versus payoff and sort of just like, are we doing, are we thinking of the user in the right way versus just sort of thinking uh, in sort of 3D aesthetic, so to speak, or like, you know, this sort of touch aesthetic is, is what I'm thinking of in terms of it's no longer visual embellishment as much as it is sort of like this, uh, the, the touch embellishment. So, yeah, it's a little forest and trees, really, you know, the we get so enamored with the capabilities, especially with more and more powerful prototyping tools. It's easy to lose track of. Is this still accomplishing something of value for people who will use it. Yes. As, you know what I mean? Yeah. As opposed to, will some animation make it feel a little more delightful so that they'll finish onboarding? Exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's like, which, which parts are the things we should be focusing on? So. Right. So uh, interesting that there's been a lot of activity around Sketch as a, as a platform almost for bringing in a lot of these tools. I s recently, um, Figma kind of came out of alpha yes. or beta or whatever it, it's it's open now and people can start to use it and the best way to describe figma i think would be as like what word is to google docs sketch is to figma mm -hmm. and that multiple users uh can use it uh at the same time and you sort of see people's cursors and change and and stuff like that it's a pretty remarkable achievement yeah technically it's it's amazing um it has very many of these sort of sketch uh, shortcuts or sort of well, conveniences. It's almost, it's almost a replica of Sketch from an interface perspective. Yeah, it's 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 like you ported Sketch yeah. to the browser. Um, it does have some super cool things like uh, the vector. Uh, I forgot what it's called. Vector. Vector networks. Vector. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. finally, getting rid of those Bezier curves. Yeah, just sort of allowing you to like control, fine tune vectors in, in ways that people. Or, you know, makes more sense for interface design, I guess. So, but it, it's, it's a cool tool. I, I, I think about, you know, talking about like sort of collaborating live or like working sessions. Um, this could be a place for it. I haven't used it in that context yet. But I do think uh, uh, collaboration and sort of having multiple designers touch something, yeah, it could be interesting. Yeah, it could be a nightmare. <laughs> like, it could be. That's, this? Yeah, no yeah. this, no this, no this. No, I see that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's cool in theory, but it's also just like, oh, how, how are we, you know, I, I haven't seen or I haven't come across a use case yet in my mind where I think collaborative editing, aside from, you know, the way in Google Docs, you're adding multiple parts to different things. I mean, so yeah, taking that analogy, I don't know. I mean, it's, would it be like you just, you're just opening up another artboard and you're going to sort of start doing something in this corner, but we're just working Could off be. the same I mean, that, file, that's I generally my experience yeah. with uh, collaborating on, Google, on a Google Doc, on a spreadsheet or a, or a text document. I'm generally talking to the person at the same time. I mean, there's obviously the sort of asynchronous, right. like we don't have to worry about files anymore. It's wonderful. Like I know I just log on and I've got the latest version. I can type and they will see what I type. That's wonderful. Like, you know, trying to manage the the file with dot final, dot final, dot final. You know what I mean? Yeah, um, exactly. I'm glad all of that's gone away. But I've had plenty of interactive experiences with like two of us in a spreadsheet, but I'm talking to the person in real time, regardless of where they are. And so you can say like, hang on, let me try this. 
how about that? You know, and going back yeah. and forth. And I think that's, I think that's pretty interesting, but I have, you know, the people that I spend time with who, who spend their lives in Excel, Google docs for whatever power it's got and features it's got never feels native to them. <laughs> right. Like it never, it's, that's what it's, I've heard too. Right. And so I, that's where I am with Figma as well. Like can't, cause it's a browser based tool. Yep. So, yeah. and I know you can wrap your browser based tool in, I can't even remember what it's called now, but you know, the, the kind of makes it feel like a Mac app. So it shows up in yep, the alt tab exactly, and all yeah, of yeah. that. But actually using a browser-based tool to do your your design, you know, where you don't have your shortcut keys and like it, it's mixed in with your other tabs and all of that. Like, yeah. I've, I've never been convinced that somebody could switch to that full-time away from something like a, a dedicated native app like Sketch or Photoshop. Or- so that's an interesting question in terms of is, is Figma then a more democratic way for people to collaborate in the same way anyone can look at a Google Doc, whether you're a designer, developer, whatever. Is Figma sort of a place for anyone to play in, from the CEO all the way down to the intern, in terms of like, okay, you can, you can touch the space because we're not going to make this the, the canonical source, but it's our playground. It's our sketch place, mm-hmm. ironically. <laughs> Could be. I don't know, but I bet, like, I mean, that, that idea of canonical is, is something I've spent a lot of time thinking about. Like, where does the ultimate design live, right? What do we go yeah. look at? Is there an artifact? Is it the live site? Yeah. And, like, is it a style guide, a design system of some sort? Like, mm-hmm. I had a fantastic conversation on this podcast a couple months ago with Stanley Wood from Spotify about these. Spotify, yeah. Yeah, that was about, great. about these design systems. But where do they live? Are they are they web pages somewhere that we all agree to go look at? Are they libraries inside of Sketch that we keep updated and distribute to each other, or what? Like, I'm, we're doing a lot of work on that. So, and I'll just state my bias right up front. I'm on the board of a company that does a prototyping tool. It's called UXPin. Yes. And they're doing, you know, there's so many prototyping tools. So they're moving kind of upstream and and providing these sort of almost real time uh, design specs where you bring a sketch file or a Photoshop file into the tool and then mark it up with, you know, essentially the red line values. You know how you yeah. sort of mm-hmm. like you do a, a layer over a sketch file and, and put in all the CSS like margins and font weights and yeah. all that kind of stuff. So they're doing that so that it lives in there and, and you can give an account to an engineer and they can come in and look at it and see what all the, the you know, and that's a canonical place for the quote unquote spec. But then moving upstream from that and saying like, how do we publish this into this artifact that is our design system. So I hire a new designer and they're like, and you say like, I want you to work on this new feature. Here's all of the constraints and guidelines and everything that you need. Go look at this. Yeah. And yeah. somehow, you know, to think way out into the future can also be used as a, like a compliance tool. Like here is our published style guide. It's, uh, kept, yeah, it's yeah, kept up to date by all the work that we do so that it's sort of automatically updated, you know, like you would with your CSS file mm-hmm. and uh, on your website. But over time, we can then have it run against the website and find components that are out of compliance with what should be there. I, you know, I don't, I don't know if that's a, a, a future version of automation that would be amazing, you know, because yep. it's so hard to stay on top of, especially as sites grow and organizations grow. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to see it actually go the other way too, though. You know, I'd like to see if, if, if you know, if, if the marketing department or, or developers... If there was a decision somewhere, because ultimately there always will be some small change that happens somewhere and something comes out of compliance, so to speak. And and, uh, because there were some constraints or an edge case, there's always edge cases uh, where, oh, you know, we need to fit this in and this will only do it this way or whatever it is. Um, And suddenly you've got something that's, that's sort of an outlier. Yeah. And then it piles, there's, there becomes an outlier pile of things. Um, it'd be interesting to see how it goes out from end product back into the system itself. But I, I also don't think systems should be as rigid as what we formally think of as style guides. Uh, they kind of need to be living, breathing documents right. in, or evolutionary documents. And so that it's like, you know, what, I mean, if you, if you had a style guide that was made 10 years ago, uh, and today's times just don't call for that aesthetic or whatever. I mean, and that's maybe a whole the design evolution thing discussion, but in, internally in the company. But it's also just sort of like, uh, you know, this this just doesn't feel like today. So I just don't know how the 
the sort of evolutionary aspect and the speed that technology happens at and, and how, you know, the pace of UI and UX is happening, that any of this stuff can be sort of stagnant for too long. Yeah, I, I think there is, much like every other sort of uh, part of this technology stack that we deal with, I think there is some potential for interesting automation coming in the future. Yes. I, I have absolutely no fear of designers being automated out of jobs, um, at, at least not in the near term, you know, in the next yeah. <laughs> decade or so. But who knows? Things go fast, things grow, and I certainly wouldn't predict any farther out than that. But I think there's some real opportunity there to be able to amplify the abilities of designers, especially when it comes to things like uh, consistency across systems and maybe even some of the automation of how we translate the work that we're doing into the code that needs to to be written by somebody else, but meeting in the middle somewhere where robots can help us do that much more efficiently. I think so. I mean, I, when, I, when, I, when I attend meetings and you've got everyone at the table who's involved in a project and we're all talking about the cost of, of doing X, Y, or Z and the timeline and you're working against all of that, I, I know there, there are so many little things where automation would vastly improve just sort of the, the anxiousness of like, oh, we got to get this done by then. And then, you know, then there are compromises that start to get made. Um, being able to get rid of those compromises and allow people to focus in on, on you know, whatever you consider the, mo the more important parts of whatever you're working on, yep. uh, I think would be a huge win yep. just, just from like development timelines. Yep. No, I think good tools give us superpowers. That's exactly what they we're do. talking about. Yep. They do. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation. I appreciate it. Um, Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Where can we find more about you? You're at uh, weightshift.com? Yeah, and nashamid.com. And uh, are you just Nas, N-A-Z, on Twitter? No, I'm Weightshift on Twitter. I oh. used to have Nas on Twitter, and then it got way too many at the plies <laughs> I bet. Uh, yeah. for Most, many different things. Yeah. So I don't want to keep it anymore. Fair <laughs> so enough. Fair enough. All right. Wait shift on Twitter. We'll send people to look over yes. there. Um, hey, I really appreciate the time. Thanks so much. Thanks, Jeff. This has been Presentable, and I'm Jeff Fein. Hey, thanks so much for listening. If you have feedback or comments or questions or anything, really, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on the web at relay.fm slash presentable or on Twitter at presentablefm. Thanks so much. Thanks so much.